If you have your Bibles today, would you open them up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 5 here in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 5. Today we're going to do our best just to kind of wrap up this series in 1 Peter. We're going to see kind of Peter's summation statement that he's making about this epistle he has penned. As Peter closes this letter, he kind of states a summation of Christian attributes that he feels should be produced in the lives of those who have learned and begin to apply the truth revealed herein. He speaks of the evidences, really, of applying the biblical truth he has taught. The reality that when someone encounters biblical truth, takes it to heart, applies it, and obeys it, it produces evidence. It produces certain character within them. As we read today, I want you to look for how Peter's going to explain the character that is nurtured through the truth, why such character is needed, and why the need for such character must be uncompromising. So let's begin with verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Beginning here with verse 5, Peter begins to lay out the character he's expecting to see nurtured in the lives of these people he has written to. If they have taken heed to the biblical truth expounded, the truth of God they have been taught, then there is character that should have been nurtured. So let's begin right there. Character that is nurtured. The reality is, my friends, the application of biblical truth nurtures distinct character in our lives. I'm going to call it Christian character, Christ-like character, character that reflects the Lord Jesus himself, the attributes of Jesus. We can describe it in many different ways, but for the born-again believer, the person who's come to faith in Christ, as they continue to learn, grow, and apply the truth of God, they begin to grow in the character of Christ. And Paul, excuse me, Peter, lists here certain character attributes that he thinks should be prevalent when we grow in biblical truth, when we have applied biblical truth. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, for four and a half chapters, I have taught you truth. Now let me tell you what I expect to see in you because of the truth you have learned. 
That's where verse 5 of chapter 5 picks up, this summation of Christian character that's expected from the application of biblical teaching. So really, we come towards the end of this book of 1 Peter, and what we find is kind of an expectation statement for us. Well, if you've listened, and if you've learned, if you've applied, and you've obeyed the truth, here's what we should see in your life. It's kind of the litmus test of our learning and application. Peter's going to list these characters. I'd like you to examine your heart and your life as we go through them to see where you line up on the test. The summation of Christian character that Peter gives as a response to growing in biblical truth begins with this character. We touched on it last week a little bit. It's there in verse 5. It's submission. Submission. When I apply the truth of God's Word and I grow in the truth of Scripture, one of the character traits I develop is that of submission. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. When we talk about submission, it is important to understand. Submission is a foundational character to the Christian faith. This is a foundational attribute of anyone who is born again. Because without the willingness to submit to the gospel of Christ, you cannot be forgiven of your sins nor given eternal life. Some of us have this idea that eternal life is simply trying to say, I believe in God. Maybe I pray a little prayer, and that's just where it ends. But if you examine the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels, he calls people to a much deeper level of relationship, to submit to him as Lord and Savior. He continually calls people to count the cost of discipleship. He tells people, look, you're going to have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It is a hard row. It's suffering. It's sacrifice. He tells people, you have to forsake father and mother, brother and sister. You have to leave your home. Are you willing to count the cost to truly submit to me? See, that's the call to follow Christ. The foundational element of faith in Jesus is that of submission. If you're a born-again believer and you truly have a relationship with Jesus, what you did at some point in your life is you submitted to him as Lord, as the one to forgive you and rule your life. Submission is not a negative word. In fact, it's a foundational element of our faith. The call to eternal life is the call to submit to Jesus. Now, we have seen in this study, Peter already lay out the call of submission with civil authorities, with employers, submission in marriage, submission to pastors, and all of that. But he's summing this up as a Christian character and driving the point home that you may submit to your employer, you may exercise submission within the church, you may submit here, or you may submit there, but ultimately it should be because you're submitting to Jesus Christ as the authority over your life. I'm willing to submit elsewhere, as he says, because truly my submission is to him. I'm submitting to the Lord Jesus. Submission in all other areas that the Bible calls for happens for one reason, because I am submitted to the authority of Christ. That's why I'm willing to submit as the Bible leads, because my submission is to Jesus. 
Now, last week we mentioned this. We touched on submission and humility. And in discussing submission, I deliberately left off a couple of points knowing we'd be there this week. Because when we talk about submission, it's not simply to civil authorities or to a spouse or to church leaders. We have to understand that all submission is ultimately bowing before the Lord Jesus, yielding to him. And I want you to see a couple of facets of what it means to submit to Jesus. Notice here in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. There's a call for humble submission that's offered to God. See, all of Peter's previous statements about submit here, submit there, submit there, is all dependent on this statement. Are you willing to offer humble submission to your Lord? Ultimately, that's what matters. Will you bow your knee before the Lord God Almighty? Will you submit to him? Will you bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and yield the entirety of your life to him? See, that's what submission really is. It is to submit to the ultimate authority of God. When I do that, all other areas are taken care of. Am I willing to do that? Well, the reality is, my friends, the application of biblical truth will only happen in the lives of those who are willing to submit to the Lord. Those who will submit themselves to the authority of the Lord Jesus are those who are willing to apply the truth he expounds and reveals. There are those who will attend church regularly, who will sit in Sunday school classes, who might want to do Bible studies and so on and so forth, and they will learn a lot of biblical information, but they will never apply it because they're not truly submitted to the Lordship of God. Until you submit to his Lordship, you won't apply the truths of Scripture. And so all that Peter has said up to this point doesn't really matter if these people won't submit to God, and the same is true for us. Every sermon you hear, every podcast you listen to, every little devotion you read means nothing if you're not willing to submit yourselves to the authority of God. That's ultimately where we start. That's why he calls for submission. The individuals who will be submissive to the Lord are the ones who will be obedient to his word, and they're the ones who grow in his word. They're the ones empowered by his word. They're the ones who are secure in his word. They're the ones who progress in Christ-likeness. Nurturing a Christ-like character in our lives will only happen when we submit to God willingly because it's then we submit to the authority of his word, which grows us in Christ-likeness. We try and try to be like Jesus. We talk to people in the church all the time. You need to be like Christ. Take on the character of Christ. Grow in the character of Christ. But we need to back up and start here. Submit yourselves to his authority. And then you'll obey his word to grow in his character. And his authority, my friends, reaches further than the walls of the church. Yielding to his authority applies to every aspect of life. It affects your family, your job. It affects your checkbook. It affects your scheduling. Authority that he will, yields, wields in life, when we yield to it, affects every aspect of life. 
I want you to notice something else here. Look, look at what he says here in that verse. He begins by addressing it. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves. I don't necessarily take that statement to mean younger in age. Although you can take it that way and apply it. I really think the reference there is to spiritual maturity. Those of you who are not spiritually mature need to be reminded more often, you must submit to the Lord. I think Peter's looking at those who are young in faith, who haven't grown in faith, those who are new to the faith, and he's saying, listen, you must be submissive to the Lord. You don't run the show anymore. You've given your life to him. He runs it. He calls the shots. Submit to the Lord. You know, those lacking spiritual maturity are the ones generally you find are headstrong, stiff-necked, self-willed, and have a hard time submitting and yielding to authority. But as they grow in spiritual maturity, they grow in the character trait of submission. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign that you've learned biblical truth, you've applied it, and grown in it. As we grow spiritually, we learn to submit, and the more we submit, the more we grow spiritually. They work hand in hand. So Peter calls for submission. That is the humble submission to God. And there's a second nuance of this submission. Still in verse 5, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. There's a call to be submissive to one another. So the first part of submission is you yield to the authority of your Lord. The second aspect of submission involves your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says you're to be submissive to one another. That is, submission to God fosters within us a mutual concern for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Because I'm submissive to the Lord Jesus and he grows me in his character, I have this natural concern for the family of faith where I'm willing to submit to their needs. I'm going to submit to the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ to do all I can to meet their needs. That's being submissive to one another. Having a willingness to lay aside selfishness and lovingly submit myself to meeting your need. That's submitting to you. That's what the call is here. To submit to one another. To lay aside our selfish ambition so that we lovingly seek to submit to the needs of one another so those needs are met. The Philippians were told that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind that each of you esteem others better than himself. Submit to the needs of those around you and take care of them. That's the call there. That's the second nuance of submission. So Peter lays out, okay, look, I've taught you this truth. Now, if you've really learned it and grown in it and applied it, here's what I'm going to see. I'm going to see hearts of submission. But then he moves on. Not only will I see submission, I'll see the twin of submission, and that's humility. Humility. Picking up there still with verse 5, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Humility works hand in hand with submissiveness. Without one or the other, they don't work well. They're twins in the same family, conjoined twins. They're they're linked. They're stuck together. You see, as we apply the truths of Christ, we should develop the humility of Christ. To grow in his nature through the application of his truth produces humility. In fact, notice the wording used here. The scripture says, be clothed with humility. That is to be wrapped in humility. To wrap yourselves in a blanket. To take a big apron and wrap the apron around you. It's the picture of Jesus taking the towel and wrapping it around himself, then bowing down to wash the disciples' feet. Wrap yourselves in that kind of humility. This word humility, as used here, carries the meaning of having a lowliness of mind and a modesty about oneself. We're to practice a lowliness of mind and a modesty about ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean you should have a a negative self-image or look down on yourself. It means you're not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. It means you're not to be puffed up in who you are. In fact, it is somewhat an attitude of indulging in a self-abasement for the benefit of others. It's having a willingness to say, I'm not more important than them. Let me set myself aside for their benefit. I wonder how pleasant every church would be if every church member said, let me set myself aside for their benefit. I wonder how pleasant every neighborhood would be if people said, let me set myself aside for the benefit of my neighbors. What would our communities look like? You see, we have a call to humility, an attitude that says, I will set myself aside for the benefit of other people. Let's go back to what was written to that church at Philippi I mentioned a second ago and put it in the full context. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one consider others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's humility. See that church at Philippi, Paul said, look, Exercise lowliness of mind. Esteem others better than yourself. Set yourself aside to serve others. He said, in fact, why don't you get in your mind the same mind that was in Jesus, who is God, but didn't think anything about forfeiting his glory, humbling himself, coming in the form of a man, living in human form for one purpose, to take your sin and shame and die in your place. Let that be the mind that's in you. Practice that kind of humility. See, there's the example of humility we're called to. That's the standard of humility. This supreme, perfect humility that Jesus exemplified is the humility we're called to pursue. He willingly abased himself, he humbled himself for the benefit of us, 
He set himself aside for the benefit of all sinners in the world. And we're called to set ourselves aside for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there's a couple of nuances to humility as well. Just like submissiveness, it all depends on where you direct your humility. You see, humility must be our stance before God. Humility is our approach and our attitude before God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Peter said. Our call to action is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. You see, sometimes I think we become a little too lax in our approach of God. We've gotten comfortable understanding we have been granted access to the throne room through the blood of Christ, and so we can approach God with boldness. He is our Heavenly Father. He pours out grace, love, and mercy upon us. But sometimes I forget, wait a minute, this is God. Time to come before Him with a humble attitude, not a demanding attitude, not an attitude of entitlement, but a humbleness, a lowliness, as I approach him as the holy, divine God. We're to express humility before God. That must be our stance. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God is to say we must be humbled under the ultimate authority that belongs to God. His mighty hand. He has sovereign power to work in all creation especially our lives individually. We must maintain a humility in regard to our attitude and our interaction with the Lord. And look at what the Bible says. Those who practice this humble submission to God, verse 6, are those he may exalt in due time. Humility before God brings me to this place where I know God will exalt me. God exalts the humble out of their suffering, out of their trials, out of their difficulties in due time, in the proper time, according to his wisdom, according to his will. God practices this exaltation of the humble throughout eternity, whereby those who have humbled themselves in submission to Christ as Lord and Savior are exalted throughout eternity with this eternal life to an inheritance that won't fade away. You see the description, may the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. There's an exaltation for those who've come to the Lord Jesus with a heart of repentance, falling before him with humility and saying, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I can't get into heaven by myself. I can't find forgiveness on my own. I can't make things right. But Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose again. And Jesus, right now I'm asking you with a humble heart, will you forgive me and will you come into my life and will you be the boss over everything? You be Lord. I come to you humbly. Those who do that, my friends, are exalted with the gift of eternal life that will never fade away or go away. It cannot be taken away. It won't go corrupt. It is always and forever secure in Christ. God exalts the humble Humility also carries just a very extreme and impressive weight 
You'll notice the very end of verse 5. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see the supreme importance to humility because God links a promise to it right out the gate. God gives a promise. He stated this in Proverbs 3.34, which Peter quotes right there. He promises to resist the proud, but to give grace to the humble. God promises to let his grace flow all over into your life when you have a humble stance before him and approach him in humility. To be self-absorbed, self-seeking, and prideful sets you in opposition to God. But my friends, if you will humble yourself before God, he promises to pour his grace out upon your life. In fact, the scripture says, by humility and the fear of the Lord, there are riches and honor and life through humility. There's a third evidence Peter lists here, a third character that he says he would like to see developed that serve as evidence. That third character is that of faith. Faith. Verse 7 says that we are casting all your care upon him. Casting your care upon him. Why do you cast your care upon him? Because you trust him. You have faith in him. You know you can depend upon him. You have a confidence in God. When I grow in the truth of Scripture, apply the truth of Scripture, it serves to grow my confidence in God. My faith is more resounding and stronger because of the truths I hold to. You have a confidence, a trust. You come to trust in God's ability to work in your lives. You come to trust in God's willingness to do that work in your lives. You have this confidence that you're so confident in God, you're willing to throw all of your anxiety, discouragement, and despair upon him. That's what that phrase, casting your care upon him, means. It means to take it all and just heave it on top of God. Take the weight of everything you can lift and just throw it over on God. Because you're confident he'll handle it. You're confident he'll carry it. You're confident he'll work in it. You're confident in God, so you have this resounding faith that says, I'll just give it to God and trust him. How do you get of confidence in God? You grow in his truth, apply his truth, live out his truth, and you experience his truth so that your confidence, your faith is strengthened and grown. This kind of confidence is the kind of confidence, my friends, that brings peace because we have confidence that God's plan is perfect, that he's in sovereign control, and so there's just a peace when things seem out of control. It's the kind of confidence in which we find peace because we're confident that God is faithful, that he has the power, that he has the wisdom, that he does love us, that he does care for us. There's a confidence there that brings a peace when the weight seems too heavy to carry. There's a confidence there in God that produces what the Bible says is a peace that is beyond understanding. In fact, the Bible says, it guards your hearts and your minds. 
So regardless of the situation around you, regardless of the turmoil you face, regardless of the pain that comes, regardless of how heavy it is or what the anxiety may be, there's a peace to guard your heart and mind that's supernatural, it's divine, it comes only from God, and it's yours. Why? Because you have a confidence in God. You've been strengthened in faith because you've learned the truths and applied them and lived them out. See, Peter said, look, I've taught you all this stuff. Now, if you've really bought into it and believing it and living it, you're going to have a stronger faith, a confidence in God. Peter continues. He says, if you learn what I've taught you and apply it, if you grow in the truth of the Lord Jesus, we will also see self-control in your life. You see that in verse 8. It begins this way, be sober. Be sober. That is, have self-control. Have self-control. That word sober there is nepho. It means to be calm and collected in spirit, being free from outside influence. So the word used for self-control or sober in that text means that I have a calm and collected spirit whereby I'm not influenced by the outside. So you can see why it's translated sober, because when someone is sober, they're not under the influence. Well, Peter here says, when I grow in, apply, learn, obey, inundate the truth of God in my life, I won't be under the control of outside influences. I have this calm and collected spirit that wards that off. He's saying that those who are conformed to the truth of God and obedient to the truth of God are those who live self-controlled lives. They exercise self-control. They have applied biblical truth that has produced sanctification in their lives and grown them to the point of having self-control. They've become disciplined over their mind and body. A disciplined mind, which leads to a disciplined body. We're to have that kind of discipline, a self-control. This is so important to our pursuit of holiness, our, our pursuit of righteousness, our pursuit of Christ's likeness. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, listen to this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we must live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What we find there in Titus is that we're not to allow worldly lusts, ungodly things to wield influence over us, we're to be self-controlled. Being self-controlled, we're to pursue righteousness and godliness in this world. You see, as a born-again believer, I learn the truth of Scripture, I apply the truth of Scripture, I obey the truth of Scripture, so that I might have enough self-control to stay away from that which hinders my holiness and pursue that which promotes holiness. That's what I'm doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talked about this and he said, look, I have had to beat 
myself into submission. This didn't just happen to me. I learned the truth, I know the truth, I apply the truth, and then I had to beat myself into submission. I had to battle my own mind and body and make it come into submission so that self-control ruled my life. My friends, even the great Apostle Paul we talk about, talked about how hard it is to be disciplined, but he worked hard to have a disciplined mind and body so that he could have self-control and live in a manner that produced righteousness and holiness. That's the call here from Peter. To have the self-control that comes from having a disciplined mind and body so that we might pursue holiness and righteous living. So we are to be disciplined in our study of Scripture, disciplined in our obedience to Scripture, disciplined in the application of Scripture so that we grow to have self-control, the self-control that we need to live righteously in the pursuit of holiness in a Christ-like manner. We're to be self-controlled people. One final characteristic Peter gives us here. That application and growth in the truth produces. Verse 8 still, he says, be vigilant. Be vigilant. We're to have vigilance as a born-again believer. When I grow in the truth of Scripture and I live in the truth of God's Word, it produces within me a vigilance. That means an ability to be watchful and alert. It's the picture of an alert guard who won't let any threat in. An alert guard who is protecting something of value. Vigilance. We must be ready to be on guard against assaults to our spiritual health, our pursuit of holiness. We must be vigilant against these things. Every born-again believer must be spiritually alert, able to guard themselves from worldly and ungodly influences. We have to be alert. Where do we learn that alertness? Where do we learn to recognize threats? Where do we learn to have a discernment from the truth of Scripture, from the application of God's truth? See, being vigilant requires us to recognize that which opposes our Christ-likeness. In Matthew 26, Jesus warned his disciples to watch and pray, lest they fall into temptation. Be vigilant, he said. Be on guard. Paul spoke of the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. He had to be on guard. He had to be vigilant. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of how Satan has hindered the work of the kingdom. The people had to be vigilant, on guard. This text here in verse 8 describes Satan as an adversary. So we must be on guard. We must be vigilant. You realize that Without the truth of Scripture and the application of Scripture in your life, the obedience to Scripture in your life, you're not equipped to stand guard over your own heart. And you can so easily be 
trapped by Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. There in the perfection of Eden, Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's attack. That reality should make you and I all the more watchful and alert, understanding that our adversary is scheming and wily and crafty, and we don't live in a perfect environment. We live in a fallen world where we are plagued by all kinds of ungodly things. We must learn to be vigilant, to be watchful and alert. The reality is, when I grow in Scripture and the truth of God's Word, it enables me to be vigilant. It's a sign of those who have a deeper spiritual maturity. My friends, I want you to take this to heart because you realize we face satanic influences in our lives every day, all in our world. And they don't come in the form of some hellish-looking demon, but in very subtle ways. The attacks to your holiness, the attacks to your Christ-likeness, aren't big red with horns and a pitchfork. They're very subtle and often pleasant and often wrapped in things that look acceptable. Attacks on our holiness come from the influence of a culture that inundate our surroundings. You know what I'm talking about. Anywhere you go, anything you turn on, anything you listen to, you're going to be confronted with an attack on holiness. It's reality. Whether it's print, electronic, or social media, ungodly influences surround us and subtly try to creep in to influence our thinking using words like tolerance and acceptance, conformity, and so forth. This is a real thing. You have to be vigilant. There are relationships, believe it or not, that will corrupt your holiness as those you form relationships with tend to influence your thinking, and quite often, if you're not careful, there are relationships that influence your thinking away from holiness and Christ-likeness rather than towards holiness and Christ-likeness. You have to be vigilant, be on guard against these things. The enemy is going to bring temptations against you, and he's going to target your areas of weakness. Be vigilant about these things. See, my friends, vigilance is simply the call to take heed, to be on guard, lest through carelessness or laziness some destructive calamity befall you. In other words, be alert, be on guard, take the truth you've learned, apply it, and have it at the ready for discernment. Because if you get lax in it, you get lazy about it, before you know it, you fall into a trap of Satan. Calamity is upon you, and you didn't even know it. So be alert. Be on guard. When you're growing in the Scriptures and applying them, that's what you do. So there's character that is nurtured. But you're like, okay, big deal. So what if I don't do it? It's not important to me to have this kind of character. I said a prayer, I really believed in Jesus, I think I'm saved and going to heaven, good enough for me. Why do I need to grow in this character? 
Well, Peter's going to point that out. He says this is character that's needed. Character that's needed. Verse 8 says, Your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking who may devour. You mean there's an adversary? That's right. Why is this character important? Well, my friends, nurturing these characteristics is extremely important in light of our adversary. Why do I need these characters, uh, the characters of Christ, these characteristics? Why do I need what this Bible will nurture in my life? Why do I need this? Because you have an adversary who's opposing you. You have an adversary out to get you. Why do you need this kind of character in your life? Because you have an enemy who wants to see you fail. That's why you need this kind of character. That's why this kind of character must be nurtured and held on to. You have an adversary, your adversary, the devil. That word adversary means one who is aggressively hostile, an aggressively hostile enemy. This isn't, well, Satan's evil, God's good, one day it'll all end. Satan thinks this, God thinks that, they just don't agree. An adversary is an aggressively hostile enemy. Someone who's out to kill, to steal, to destroy. Someone who wants to wreak havoc. An enemy who wants to cause harm. This is a hostile opposition with an intent to cause confusion, conflict, and chaos as much as possible. That's what an adversary is. And here the scripture says, our adversary seeks to do that. Cause confusion, conflict, and chaos within our lives. Now we all, at least most of us probably know the scripture and know how things played out. That Satan has been the adversary of God from the point that he rebelled against God. He was cast out of heaven. He's expanded that opposition against God's kingdom and all who are called God's children. He's an adversary. Now, we know because we've got the scriptures, we know the history of how things played out. We know what's going on, and we know how things end. And we know Satan is a defeated enemy. We realize that. We know that's the truth. He's a defeated enemy, but he is intent on inflicting as much confusion, chaos, conflict, hurt, destruction as he can before the time ends. Before the clock runs down to zero, he's intent on doing as much destruction as he can. You have an adversary. Why do you need to grow in this character? Because you have an adversary. That's why it's important to you. You have an adversary. You have one who stands in opposition to you. In fact, Peter says here, your adversary, the devil. That word devil is an intentional word. Peter uses it because it, may, it refers to a malicious enemy who slanders and attacks. One who will stand in opposition to you and attack you every chance he gets. One who will slander you and attack you in every different way he can. Look at the further description. He walks about like a roaring lion. See, the adversary to God's kingdom and to each of God's kingdom ambassadors is described as one who roams around like a roaring lion. It's pretty interesting if you study lions. In fact, it's a whole sermon in and of itself, and I didn't write down all the things that would be interesting to you. But let me just point out three basic things about a lion out on the roaming around seeking to devour 
See, lions, when they hunt in packs or even a male lion hunting on his own, they're vicious hunters who stalk their prey. And they look to devour the prey, not just hurt it or maim it. They're hunting with intent to devour what they kill. The lion will single out the weak or the vulnerable. And that's where the lion attacks first, the weak and the vulnerable. And you know, Satan will attack each of us in our times of weakness and vulnerability. When you are spiritually weak or even physically or emotionally weak, Satan will levy an attack because he singles out the vulnerability and the weakness. Why do I need to nurture such character? Because when I'm spiritually weak, Satan will attack. That's why I need to nurture such character. And you know, when you look into how lions hunt, a lot of times they single out the weak and vulnerable and get them away from the herd. And once, once the critter gets singled out away from the herd, well, there's just no hope for it anymore. You wonder why pastors worry themselves to death over people who won't come to church, who fall out of church, who get away from the herd, and they're out on their own because we know Satan's going to attack and you're vulnerable. Well, I come to church once a month, or I come every so often, or I... No. Where do you find your strength and encouragement? Where do you find your edification? Here. Doesn't mean Satan won't attack, but at least you have a herd to blend into and support you and to strengthen you. But even when you're here and you're faithful, when you have those times of weakness, when you find yourself spiritually drained or emotionally drained or even physically drained, you're vulnerable and weak. Satan will attack. He'll attack. It'll happen. Something else about lions is they stalk. They stalk their prey and quite often... The prey has no idea they're in danger until it's too late. They stalk up very quietly and subtly. The prey's just there doing its thing, and then all of a sudden the lion pounces, surprises, and it's too late. My friends, if you study the scriptures, you'll find out that Satan, our adversary, is wily, he's crafty, he uses devices, he schemes. He presents himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you and say, hey, I'm the devil. He slips in the back door when you left it cracked just a little bit. Why do I have to nurture such character? Because our enemy seeks to attack us. And once again, the goal of a lion is not simply to wound, but it is to devour to destroy completely. They consume what they kill. And that is how Satan works. You see, he's out to kill, to steal, to destroy. That's what Jesus said in John 10. He wants total chaos. He wants to devour your hope. He wants to devour your peace. He wants to devour your joy. Why do I need to nurture such character from the scriptures? Because Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy that character. 
My friend, Satan has attacked on many fronts, and he's going to continue to do so. He's attacked God in open rebellion. Who are we to think he would never attack us? He's attacked God's kingdom in this world throughout history. From creation forward, there's been satanic attacks levied against God's redemptive work. You read the Old Testament, you'll see it all through there. He has consistently attacked the church from her inception. Go back and look at the book of Acts. And look how Satan began to attack the church. From outside the church, as the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and the religious rulers attacked the apostles and told them to quit preaching and quit ministering. When that didn't work, the attacks came from within the church. Read about Ananias and Sapphira or all the false teachers that the apostles had to write about from within the church. Satanic attack has come more recently in the form of compromise where churches have been encouraged to accommodate cultural views by changing or water down or overlooking doctrine. He has savagely attacked the family as God has ordained and established the family. There's been a satanic devouring of biblical marriage. There's been a satanic devouring of the man's role in the family. There's been a satanic devouring of the family as the building block of society as God intended. He has continued his attack on those committed to God. My friends, if you're a committed, born-again believer, living faithfully in the pursuit of holiness, you have an adversary who will attack you. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible uses the word wrestle. That's hand-to-hand. The Bible says you wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You have an adversary. You have an adversary. Why do I need to nurture such character? Because you have an adversary. He wants to see you fail. You need the character of the the Bible, the character of the truth, the character of Christ that is nurtured and grown through the Scriptures. You need that character because you have an adversary. Now listen, this satanic attack is not unique to any of us. It's common among all who faithfully serve Christ. In fact, the Scripture here says, the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood after the world. This is a commonality of being a faithful servant of Christ. Knowledge and application of biblical truth that produces righteous character becomes immensely important in light of the adversary we face. This character is needed. But Peter has one more thing to say about this character. He says this is character that is non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. There's no compromise here. The character produced from obedience to biblical truth is character that cannot be compromised. To withstand spiritual attack, to faithfully honor the Lord Jesus, our character must be non-negotiable. That which God's word produces in our life, the character of Christ, is uncompromised. It's non-negotiable. Doesn't matter who you talk to, doesn't matter what situation you're in, doesn't matter which group you're hanging with, doesn't matter what culture says, doesn't matter. It's non-negotiable. In fact, look at verse 9. Your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then verse 9 says, resist him steadfast in the faith. Resist him steadfast in the faith. We are called to resist our adversary being steadfast in the faith. 
That means no compromise, non-negotiable. We resist and we're steadfast. Those two words really blend and are tied together. Resist means to withstand and to stand against the adversary. To resist and stand against. Not just know I have an adversary, not just learn some truth about the adversary, but to say I will stand against the adversary. I will stand against ungodliness. I will stand against unrighteousness. I will stand against. It is taking a stand against all that is in opposition to God's kingdom. It means taking a stand against anything that opposes biblical truth. Our problem is we like to ignore those things. We like to ignore those elements of of culture and society or politics that contradict biblical truth. We like to kind of ignore those things, but we're called to take a stand against those things. Resist. It's to resist, to stand against spiritual attack. Don't succumb to any of that. Stand against the such. You see, faithfulness to Christ involves this willingness to stand against anything, everything, all things that are defilement to him, to his word, to his kingdom. If it's dishonoring to Christ, I must stand against. If it defames the name of Christ, I must stand against. If it contradicts the truth of Christ, I must stand against such things. To resist. It goes on and says to be steadfast in the faith. That means to stand firm in the truth of our faith. We resist, we take a stand, but we're standing firm in the truth of our faith. Steadfastness refers to having this solid and firm stand that cannot be compromised. We are to take a firm, solid, uncompromising stand against spiritual wickedness and depravity. It's like when you're in school, your math teacher always told you this. Never liked math teachers much anyway. Can't do your work in pen. Got to use a pencil. Why? Because you're going to have to change it. You're going to have to change that work. You're going to need an eraser. Never do your work in pen, always a pencil, because you're going to have to erase and change some numbers. That's not how this works. This is written in ink. The character of Christ grown in our lives, the stand we take on biblical truth is written in ink. There's no erasing it. There's no changing it. There's no modifying it. It's what the Bible says, period. Here's where I stand. That's standing firm in your faith. It's taking this uncompromising stand based on the truth of Scripture and living by it till the end. You see, resisting and being steadfast requires us to be anchored in biblical truth. That's where this all started. Peter said, listen, if you've learned and applied and obeyed those truths I've taught you, there's character that's produced. Well, now he's coming right back around and saying, okay, now if you want to do what you have to do, you've got to be anchored in that biblical truth. You've got to know it, learn it, apply it, obey it, live in it, be anchored in the biblical truth. We must know sound doctrine, believe sound doctrine. We must practice sound doctrine in our daily lives. 
If we do that, we're provided to strengthen the courage we need to be uncompromising in living out the character of Christ, even in the midst or the face of satanic attacks. How can I have the strength? How can I have the courage? How can I be immovable when I'm anchored in the solid truth? That's when that happens. But when I don't know sound doctrine, I'll fall for other doctrines. Or when I don't take to heart the doctrine I've been taught, I'll follow after false doctrines. Or if I'm not willing to apply sound doctrine, well, then I'll just accommodate any doctrine. Where you choose your own reality and your own truth and your own way. But that's not God's way. Uncompromising character that's based in biblical truth, that allows us to distinguish between truth and error, between unrighteousness and righteousness, between God's real and the world's allurement. It's, it's all based in God's word. You know, the Bible tells us that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. So really the best way to resist him and stand fast in your faith is to be anchored in the truth of God's word, to live out that truth, to live out the character that biblical truth produces. That's how you're successful. It's being anchored in the word. To live out a non-negotiable character it's really to kind of follow the words of Jude when he advises us in his exhortation to contend, contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. To vigorously live out your faith. To vigorously defend your faith. To vigorously advance the kingdom of faith. Where are you anchored today? Are you anchored in the truth of God's word? So that you can resist and stand firm? Are you anchored in God's word so that it's being applied in your life and you're growing so that you grow the character you need to face an adversary you have? Where are you at with God today? See, it could be you're not even one of his children, so none of this character even applies to your life. You're already in opposition to God just by your state of alienation from God. See, the Bible tells us that because of sin, we're separated from God. That being a great person, a good person, doing good things, that's not what makes us right with God. There's nothing we can do to be made right with God. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross. He was taking our sins and bearing them for us, being punished in our place to purchase our forgiveness. He was put in a tomb and rose again, alive right now. So that the Bible says, if you will confess to him, Jesus, your Lord, and I want you in my life. I trust you. I admit that I need you. And I yield myself to you. The Bible says he will bring forgiveness and give you the gift of eternal life. He'll make you part of God's family. And you begin to grow in the truth of God's word, grow in the character that God's word produces, and you'll be equipped to face the adversary that's out there. Some of you, you're already born again believers. You need to kind of check your heart and just see, now wait a minute. Is there evidence that I'm growing in God's word, that I'm applying biblical truth and living it out? 
Or does born-again believer just a rubber stamp name I have on myself? It doesn't mean a thing. Maybe some of you are under some type of attack right now. But let me encourage you to exercise your confidence in God and call out to Him today and ask for Him to be at work and to move in your life. I don't know really what God has to do with you today, where you're at with God. That's none of my business. That's between you and God. But here is my business. You better do something about it today.